Do you like what you're hearing right now? Then be sure to check out VOC Nation. Whether it's on VOCNation.com or your favorite podcast provider, VOC Nation offers the greatest in live and on-demand content, great interviews, and incredible insight from those who have lived the business. Seven days a week, VOCNation.com. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter at VOCNation. Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today, the true legend of pro wrestling historians from the great state of Minnesota, the man himself, Mr. George Shire. George, thank you for coming back on today. Always fun. And, man, when you introduced me, <laughs> oh, wow, thank you. You're kind. Oh, no, of course. So today, George... I want to talk to you about the, in my mind, because I grew up with it, one of the greatest promotions uh, to me, and I'm sure for you as well, in, in history, and that was the American Wrestling Association, the AWA, specifically the era when it really started, the uh, the 1960s. So we're going to clear the air a little bit about some some myths. Uh, uh, Please don't the, make me do it again. I've got to, but first I want to start oh. out on, before we get to that part, I want to get to the part of uh, when it was created and, and basically why the AWA was uh, created and kind of the little backstory of that, if you would, please. Well, you know, it really was kind of, kind of simple and very, uh, you know, they talk, talk about transparency when something takes place that you want it to just kind of smooth, go smoothly and, you know, without little fanfare. Uh, the AWA, as most people have heard me say that have listened, was officially launched in August of 1960. And, but the, the reality of that is, Brian, is that it was basically the same wrestling promotion that had existed in Minnesota since the early 40s, even into the late 30s, mm. as far back as you can go when there was wrestling in what then would have been the Twin Cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis. Uh, during the later 40s, when uh, in 1948, 49, when the group of promoters got together and they were going to form that what what became the National Wrestling Alliance. Yeah. Tony Stecker, who had been the longtime promoter in uh, Minneapolis, and, and I always clarify this when I say this to folks. Whenever I say Minneapolis, I'm always referring to the territory itself. So that's all of the cities and the states that Minneapolis territory promoted in because Minneapolis was the home office mm -hmm. of the NWA in the 50s and the AWA in the in the uh, later on. So there we go. Okay. <laughs> so when that group of promoters got together in the late 40s to kind of come together and say, hey, we want to we want to recognize one world champion and make it uh, easier to you know rent that champion out to all the promotions. Well, Tony Stecker. He was the Minneapolis promoter, and he was part of that initial group. So when the National Wrestling Alliance was formed, uh, he had every bit of a voice as Sam Wichnick and, and all of the others that were on that uh, committee at the time. Mm -hmm. So in the 50s, pro wrestling in the Twin Cities was run every week. They changed nights here and there, you know, throughout the years, different nights, but usually a Tuesday or a Thursday night, there was wrestling. And it was an every week promotion in the in the city of Minneapolis. And of course, St. Paul then was running as well with uh, promoter Eddie Williams. Now, the, the only difference there was is that Tony Stecker was the, I guess you'd say the head of the Minneapolis wrestling. It was the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club from day okay. one. Boxing was kind of a side thing they didn't do a lot of it but every once in a while they would you know have a boxing program so st paul promoter uh the license for the promotion in st paul was eddie williams but he was a part of the minneapolis wrestling and 
in the in the fifties, um, whoever was the NWA champion at that time in the fifties, more often than not, it was Lou Fez, who is any longtime older historian or just a, any fan, they'll recognize that Lou Fez was kind of the poster child for pro wrestling. He was the guy that epitomized what a champion should be. He had the build, he had the looks in his younger years, and and uh, and he was real. I mean, this guy was a real wrestler, and he was the guy that could defend himself if you know any of the wrestlers wanted to get cute in the ring and 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 not lose that night or or you know just see how good this guy really is. Lou showed him I, absolutely. So he was the he was the guy that would come in more often than not on a. Uh, the way it worked in the in the fifties was the the traveling NWA champion would be going to all of the bigger territories once or twice, sometimes three times a year, because they could have a, a match and then if they needed a rematch, you know, something happened that the challenger didn't uh, get a fair shake or whatever the deal was, and so Lou would come in and Minneapolis fans then with Tony Stecker. And by the way, just so fans know, Tony Stecker was the brother of legendary wrestler Joe Stecker, who had yeah. been recognized as a world champion wrestler himself back in the 30s. So he was in Luthez's early era. And so Joe uh, had that lineage to Minneapolis Wrestling Club as well. So Tony would bring in the NWA champion. And the way the Minneapolis Wrestling Club was was worked is like it was all along. We had uh, at times uh, kind of that mainstay wrestler, two or three of them that kind of worked the territory on a regular basis. We were very fortunate in the 50s because Vern Gagne, who graduated from the University of Minnesota, excelled in football and wrestling, and uh, got into the pro ranks in 1949, and he would come home, what we'd call home, to Minneapolis, uh, you know, once or twice or three times a year, and he would be the hot dog on the cards. And the, the whole thing was is that he always was challenging for the world title, and that was Luthez more often than not. Uh, we could talk about a couple of the little interim champions along the way, but that's not really important to the conversation. Mm-hmm. So... Vern and Lou had this ongoing rivalry. <clears throat> and as time goes on, you know, the story goes that Lou is dodging him, avoiding him. Is he afraid of him? And, of course, some of it's politics behind the scenes, but a lot of it's also very true. Lou didn't want to wrestle Vern, and they admitted that. Uh, Vern always wanted to wrestle Lou. And their matches, you know, through the years, boy, I tell you what, they had, uh, I've got it listed down. They had about eight matches that they wrestled together against. And Lou definitely got the nod more often than not because he was the champion. But uh, <clears throat> they were great matches. Yeah. And uh, so that was the whole storyline. We had guys like hard-boiled Haggerty, who was a semi-regular in the 50s, and guys like Killer Kowalski and Kinji Shibuya, uh, Luthez, as we mentioned. We had Bearcat Wright come through, and we just had a large group of wrestlers. You know, it was the, the 50s was the era of the Lasowski brothers. Uh, in the end of the 50s, we had Reggie Lasowski and Art Nielsen. We had the Brunetti brothers, Joe and Guy. One of my favorite introductions is always, and I, I love telling this because it, I just tickle when I remember it. Marty O'Neill used to come into the center of the ring, and he would say to the, the audience, he'd say, fans, in this corner, and I can't do Marty O'Neill, so I'm not trying to, but he'd say, in this corner from Salt Lake City, Utah, at a combined weight of 458 pounds, they're a good Joe and a great guy. The Brunetti brothers, <laughs> a good Joe and a great guy. And so they were very popular uh, baby faces. And we just had uh, just an excellent territory. 
Well, the bottom line is, as we get to uh, about 1954, Tony Stecker passes away. And his son, Dennis, took over the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club with Wally Carbo at his side. Now, Wally Carbo, we should point out, was also one of those uh, promoters that was at those 1948-49 NWA meetings. Okay. And uh, so he was a, a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. And Marty was, at, in those days, was listed as the matchmaker. So Dennis Decker was the promoter. Wally was the matchmaker. He was the one that, you know, Tony would sign the matches, but Wally would get them together and organize everything according to the story. Mm-hmm. So that's the way it went for the next, uh, from about 1955 until 1959. But as it's happening, Vern is still, I want a match with Luthez. <clears throat> and uh, in 1959, and about a year into this, they were working out the negotiations. Vern and Wally Carbon and Dennis Stecker and the family wanted to get out of the promotion at that point in time, just the, owning the Minneapolis Wrestling Club. Mm-hmm. So Vern and Wally were working together. And they were going to buy the Minneapolis Territory, which is what it was always referred to. And uh, when we got to late 1959, it was announced that Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo had purchased the territory. However, they left it at that because it was never then acknowledged that Vern Gagne was really, you know, behind the scenes because that would have taken away from the fact that he was challenging for the title and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But bottom line was Wally Carbo became the promoter in 1959, taking the place of Stecker. And so <clears throat> Wally is now the promoter in Minneapolis. And we still have Eddie Williams in St. Paul. And Eddie just was, he had the license in St. Paul. But as far as the actual ownership of the wrestling office, he had nothing. He was the yeah. promoter of license. Okay. <laughs> so in essence, when he's listed as running St. Paul cards, he was still working with Wally Carbo, Vern Gagne, and putting cards together in St. Paul. Well, here we go. We get to late 1959, and Pat O'Connor is now the National Wrestling Alliance World Champion, having – there was a little bit of a succession, but uh, O'Connor won it from Dick Hutton, and Dick Hutton had won it from Lou Thez. I will point out that that was Luthez's chosen successor, Dick Hutton. He wanted to wanted to step down as champion, and he, he said, I'll lose it to Dick Hutton. Well, the problem with Dick was as great an amateur wrestler and as great a worker as he was, he was about as charismatic as watching your grass grow. And that's not being <laughs> insulting. It's just that the guy did not have, he did not have that it factor to bring people in. Yeah. And... <clears throat> As the world champion, you know, you got to have a guy who can really draw the people. And you got to remember, too, that the formula for the NWA champion was always that whatever city he went into, he had to either play the heel or the baby, depending on who the challenger was, because he wasn't a regular in the territory. He was the mm-hmm. world champion. And when he was coming to town, if he was facing the baby face, well, Luthez was going to be the subtle he- heel. And if he was going to be facing a heel, then, of course, he'd be the all-time great charismatic Luthez. So Dick Hutton didn't have that. Pat O'Connor then was given the title from Dick about two years in to Dick's run, which was a little bit earlier for the NWA formula because they like to do about three years with their champ. Mm -hmm. But O'Connor got it, and O'Connor was a whirlwind in his young days. Um, If fans could have seen him, holy cow. He was a, he technically was kind of a high flyer, had one of the greatest drop kicks in the world where he would go up and get the guy on the chin and Pat would be straight out, his head over here, his feet here and right in the chin of the, of the opponent. And I mean, there's a picture on one of the wrestling review magazines where he's deli- on the cover, where he's delivering the drop kick to, I believe it's Killer Kowalski on the cover. And it, it's a magnificent, I'll even send it to you when we're done here. I'll show it okay. to you. But that was the deal with O'Connor. He was very charismatic. 
He was actually had some of his early training for the business by Vern Gagne. Oh, wow. Way back in the early 50s. He came over here from New Zealand. He was a legit New Zealander. And he got some of his early training here in the States from uh, Joe Pazendak, who was one of Vern Gagne's original trainers, and, of course, Vern himself. Well, anyway, so now we're in 19, going into 1960, and Vern and Wally buy the Minneapolis Territory. We've got Vern, who is behind the scenes. Wally's listed as the promoter. And in March of 1960, the Minneapolis office is now owned for about six months by Vern and Wally. Wally Carbo is out there along with other, as they state, wrestling promoters trying to get this, finally get this title match for Vern Gagne against the NWA world champion, who was O'Connor at the time. So they put out this challenge in March of 1960. Actually, it was, it was started, they started talking about it in March. In May was when the official challenge came out. And the challenge was very simple. Uh, the NWA was given an ultimatum by Wally Carbo and other Midwest promoters to force Pat O'Connor, the reigning NWA champion, to defend the title to what they considered the number one challenger, Vern Gagne. And the ultimatum was 90 days. And if Vern, if uh, Pat or the NWA refused to meet that challenge, then the Minneapolis wrestling office would no longer and those other promoters, Wally Carbo and those other promoters, would no longer recognize the NWA champion, and in this case it was still O'Connor, as the world champion. So the 90 days they played it through in the, in the Minneapolis and the St. Paul programs, and I know they did it in some of the smaller area programs that were under the jurisdiction here, that Vern is still chasing O'Connor. O'Connor is not responding to the... Uh, Challenges, the NWA has remained silent. And as we got closer to the 90-day uh, deadline, the answer to the question was, is he going to get the title shot or not? Well, we got to August, and the challenge wasn't answered. And by August 16th, it is announced that because the NWA did not respond, and their NWA champion, Pat O'Connor, did not answer the challenge that Minneapolis Wrestling Club is now recognizing Vern Gagne as the first American wrestling. In those days, it was Alliance World Champion. Okay. American Wrestling right. Alliance. Okay, that's the way it was announced. Now, I just want folks to know that there was never any intent <clears throat> for Pat O'Connor to defend the title to Vern Gagne, nor was the NWA in reality dodging the challenge because the challenge was for storyline purposes. What had happened behind the scenes, and I'll say this in the simplicity form, is that <clears throat> because the NWA at the time was under, uh, it, actually it was like a federal investigation by the U.S. Justice Department for being a monopoly that they were monopolizing pro wrestling with their holding of the champion. And what the NWA decided to do was they would give up a few of their cities, and therefore they wouldn't be a monopoly. Well, one of those major territories was Minneapolis, who became the American Wrestling Alliance, and therefore they couldn't claim to be the only champion, and they kind of dodged the bullet with the Justice Department. Leads you to believe why we don't have that today with some top someplace out in New York, who I think is <laughs> an But uh, anyway, <clears throat> we don't want to go there. So Vern Gagne was the first, and it was recognized. And I do have the programs listing this, that congratulations to Vern. He's now the American Wrestling Alliance World Champion. And Pat O'Connor and the NWA was basically never mentioned again. Ironically, a couple years later, after uh, Pat lost the title, the NWA title, he did come through Minneapolis and work. And they would do a storyline, you know, would, would Vern consider giving him a title match? Because when Pat was world champion, 
They never mentioned mentioned in those days NWA or AWA in the programs. It was mm-hmm. would would Vern accept a challenge from Pat because Pat avoided him when he was world champion. So I think sometimes when people kind of do the history, Brian, I, I think mm-hmm. that's when they get confused because we know there are websites out there that say that Pat O'Connor was the first AWA world champion. Right. And it you know, that just isn't true based on and books. what I have in and the books. program. And books, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So there it is. That's how it started. And so uh, I just want to make clarification, George. Pat O'Connor was not the first AWA World Heavyweight Champion. That I want that clarified right here and now on this program. Well, and and it's funny you say it that way because I tease my wife all the time. I say if you, if I ever get Alzheimer's, you'll know I officially have it if I cannot <laughs> say that Pat O'Connor was not. The first AWA world champion. So there <laughs> <Okay>. you go. <laughs> All so right. Vernon Wally, Vernon Wally started the AWA. And what happened in that initial transfer was there, there were a few guys that were more NWA wrestlers at the time that suddenly didn't appear in Minneapolis or its surrounding promotion, you know, cities they promoted in. Um, we had a guy here by the name of Frank Townsend who was uh, uh, just an excellent baby face, good-looking, tall kid, you know, one of the lady heartthrobs, as they they advertise him as, and and a good worker. And he was a crooner. He could sing. So he was the singing wrestler. But when uh, he was very popular here in 1959, he had a lot of main events. Vern teamed with him. But when Vern took over, Vern and Wally, uh, Frank was gone. No fanfare. He just was gone, and he never wrestled here again. Well, I take that back. He did appear for a couple of appearances, like in 1963, but they were just like one-shot deals. So he was basically gone. What Vern and Wally had done when they formed the AWA is Vern got in touch with a lot of his his friends in the business. And when I say friends, I'm talking about fellow wrestlers. So guys like Wilbur Snyder and Leo Namalini, who was a, a, a Minnesota Gopher, a University of Minnesota Gopher with Vern, and a great, excellent football player for the San Francisco uh, Giants, and a great wrestler. And he got a hold of Leo Namalini and, and Wilbur Snyder. He got uh, We had Tiny Mills and Stan Kowalski here as tag team champions at the time, who were both more local in, in – uh, the AWA. And then we had Joe Scarpello, who, you know, Joe Scarpello is one of those guys that will never, ever get the credit he deserves for being the excellent worker he was. He wasn't a big guy. In fact, he was often referred to as um, a, a little Vern Gagne. He was a little shorter than Vern. They, they even looked a little bit alike. They had the same, you know, the balding head and, uh, so they made a team, a good team off and on, but Vern got a hold of him. And uh, he also brought in hard-boiled Haggerty, who was one of his regular opponents in the 50s in Minneapolis, Minneapolis territory. And you talk about great program against each other. Um, the 50s was probably the haggerty Ganya feud was as good as the Ganya Mad Dog Bashan feud would become in the 60s. It was just they, they had that animosity and that chemistry to work and put together a great match. So he got a hold of HB. He brought in uh, Lenny Montana, and he contacted Gene Kaniski and uh, Texas Bob Geigel. So he had a core of guys when he started the American Wrestling Alliance that they were solid, proven main eventers. I mean, they weren't bringers. He didn't bring in somebody and put them to the top. These were guys that had traveled the country and mm-hmm. were stellar stars. So there you go. And for the first uh, year or two, uh, Vern worked with this group of wrestlers that he brought in. He called on Bill Miller, Dr. Bill Miller, who was also one of Vern's longtime real personal friends outside the ring. And uh, he brought him in as Mr. M under a mask. And the, the first couple of years of the AWA, I mean, it was the matches were the cards were really great, loaded, not only with that upper 
echelon of talent that I just mentioned, but also some great up-and-coming guys. And they, yes. they brought in guys like Don Jardine, who was a rookie in those years. Don Jardine, for facts that for folks that don't know, was later on the spoiler under a mask, and he was also the super destroyer under a mask. But in those days, he was Don Jardine. He wrestled as Sonny Cooper here, but same guy. And we had young Ray Collins, or Roy Collins, I'm sorry. Roy Collins, who later on went became famous as Ripper Roy Collins. We had uh, uh, Rene Goulet, who Vern brought in here in early 63. Had Doug Gilbert. I mean, just a great array of talent. Eddie Sharkey. All these guys that rounded out his cards. Gentleman Jim Haiti, who was extremely popular and went, went on to be famous in other territories. So the first couple of years of the AWA, um, they were on par with any promotion around the country. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it, it's the AWA in the 60s, I was doing a little research on things, and I tell you, it was really the who's who in in wrestling. It, the, the guys that were uh, really well-known in the 70s really made their their mark and their <laughs> – and their and their name in the '60s, it seemed like in the mid '60s in the AWA, Harley Race, uh, you know, handsome Harley Race, uh, pretty Larry pretty boy, pretty boy Larry Henning. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, can you kind of explain like how did Vern and Wally? Because Wally gets doesn't get enough credit either. I don't believe. How did those two really? Like make cross or not cross pass, make pass for these guys because some of these guys that came in weren't well known, but when they were, if they went to another territory, boy, they were on fire, and they didn't want to burn out. So, uh, what was their what was that formula? Do you do you know what their formula was for that? Well, you know what a lot of people may not look at it in hindsight is that. Now, and I want to point out that you said about Wally not always getting the credit. Uh, Wally was the face of the AWA. He was the, the stumbling, bumbling promoter, played his part well, very intelligent man, uh, very good at promoting, putting matches together, working with the boys. He was kind of the voice of reason. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of wrestlers will tell you that Byrne behind the scenes could be bullheaded sometimes and a little more stubborn and Vern was, he knew what he wanted to do and he wanted you to adhere to it. And, you know, he, he was, he was a great promoter. I mean, yeah. the formula that he had worked, but Wally was the peacemaker. You know, the boys had a beef. When I say the boys, I'm talking about the wrestlers. When they had yeah. a beef, they could go to Wally and Wally could kind of work things out and please things and then, you know, work it out with Vern. So, but originally Vern and Wally were 50, 50 partners. Mm-hmm. in the the ownership of the Minneapolis Wrestling Club, which technically was the AWA, okay? So, uh, but the formula that Vern used is he also had the ability where he started training a lot of his own talent, some of this younger talent. Now, I mentioned earlier that Vern had played a small part in the training of, of uh, Pat O'Connor way back in the early. Pat O'Connor, I think, came here in 1950 or 51, and Vern, already just a a youngster in the business himself, would offer his training points. You know, it wasn't that he had an official camp or anything, but he'd work with a guy, you know, Mm -hmm. tell him what to do here and there and maybe show him a move or two or some type of thing. So Vern started training wrestlers as early as that, but Dick the Bruiser, for example, Vern and Joe Pazendak again actually trained Dick the Bruiser. When he came into the business, he was Bruiser Aflis. His last name was Aflis, A-F-F-L-I-S. And few people would have known that, but Bruiser came into the business as a heel. Vern gave him his, his early training. And he continued to do that in the 50s. He trained guys like Bill Wright who would go on to become Billy Red Cloud later on. Uh, Vern trained, um, worked a lot with Red Bastine when Red, a Minneapolis native, 
was coming out of Roosevelt High School here in, in Minneapolis and getting into the and, – and Red was a carnival wrestler. He, he'd go around with the traveling carnivals, and that was in the days when they'd issue a challenge to, you know, some hick in the farm town to come and beat the champ sort of type thing. Yeah. And a lot of times they were staged, but uh, Red was a legit guy as well. He knew how to shoot if he needed to. But he got some of his early training from Vern. So this kind of morphed into, as we got into the uh, later, uh, Vern trained Larry Hennig in 1957. Joe Pazendak was always behind the scenes a lot in those early years. and But Vern was the trainer for Larry. So he was he was already, by the time he got to the 60s, he had brought a few guys into the business. And in 1961, he trained a guy by the name of Gene Anderson from South St. Paul. And Gene Anderson, and again, he legitimately was from South St. Paul. He graduated from the high school there and was an amateur wrestler. And Vern brought him into the pro ranks. Gene stayed with us for about... Uh, for a little over four years. And a lot of times when Vern would train a work or work with a wrestler, then he had Gene assisting him. And a lot of people didn't know that at the time. A lot of people don't mm-hmm. know it today. Yeah. Well, as the 60s moved on, we had Vern train a guy by the name of Jack Lanza from Minneapolis. His real name was John Lanzo. Lanza with an O at the end instead of an A. Uh, but Jack Lanza, in his initial matches, he was trained by Vern. He was introduced when he'd come to the ring. He used to wear a long red robe. He had the towel around his neck. And he was introduced at, from Minneapolis, Jack Lanza. Then he morphed a little bit. All of a sudden, he was the the Italian champion. That was the figurehead title, you know. He was the <laughs> Italian champion. I don't know if Lanza's Italian or not, but that's what it became. And he... Then he morphed into, in the late, in the middle 60s, he was now Cowboy Jack Lanza. He had the white cowboy hat. He had a pair of blue jeans that were cut off for his trunks, his wrestling trunks. And they were blue jeans. And then he had his cowboy boots on. And that's what he wrestled as. He was a baby face, but he was Cowboy Jack Lanza out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> and so Jack got his early training. And... We get to about 64, 65. Vern is working with some more guys. Uh, in 65, he brought into the business a guy named Larry Hynemi. And Larry Hynemi was an amateur wrestler out of St. Cloud. He had a good background. And uh, I believe he had, I believe he actually had a degree in psychology. Oh wow! I know that was the story. I know that was the story that was always given, but I, I think it's factual that from St. Cloud U, uh, he had had a degree in psychology, but he became a pro wrestler. He went to Vern, and Gene Anderson assisted in helping Larry Hainimi get into the business. So for about oh, nine months to a year after Hainimi made his pro debut in 65, more often than not, one of his opponents on a regular basis was Gene Anderson. And the idea was is that he was getting more training in every one of those matches. And, of course, any other wrestler that worked with Larry Hyde, the same thing. In those days, the wrestlers, the rookies in any territory, they would be working with the talent in the territory and adding to or subtracting from their own repertoire to make who they were, build their character, their their type of style. Well, we all know that in 1966, late 66, Gene Anderson had an offer to go to some southern rings to wrestle, and he took Larry Hainimi with him. And Larry Hainimi became brother Lars Anderson to Gene. And that was the formation, folks, of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, the Anderson Brothers. But there you had a guy that was trained by Vern, who for about the first nine months or so of his career worked a lot. He had matches against Larry Hennig and Carly Race. Larry Hainimi did. Uh, he was a babyface. He teamed with Mighty Igor in a title match against them at one point. 
So Vern was using him and giving him the uh, proper training. But Vern always had that base where he would bring talent in. He trained in 1966. We know that he trained Jim Raschke from Omaha, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And Jim Raschke morphed into Baron von Raschke, the hated German. Later in his career at the end, he was, of course, popular. But that was the key to Vern's success is that he would hold these training camps. And sometimes he'd have two, three, four guys that would come out. There were times when he'd have nine or 10, 12 guys come out that I'm going to be a wrestler. You know, they, they think this is going to be, you know, easy, easy potatoes. Well, guess what? Yeah. They get through about a week of it, and those guys are sent home with their tails between their legs because Vern was rough on them. Yeah. You know, Vern, Vern never opened up about the business. He never told them that it was a work. He, he wanted them to know how to fall. He wanted them to he wanted them to know the holds. He wanted them to uh, know how to work the ropes and you know deliver the the drop kicks or whatever it was. Uh, Vern wanted them to be ready for the ring. In 1967, he trained another guy named Al Rogowski, who was from Minneapolis territory here, one of the suburbs. And when he debuted, he was uh, he was dubbed Rock. Rogowski, and he was billed in the, in the initial settings as possibly being a relation to the Crusher and the Bruiser, because he had kind of the same look at the time. He had the crew cut, the blonde crew mm-hmm. cut. He was built a little bit along Crusher Bruiser build. Was never, you know, never confirmed, but it was rumored <laughs> that he was re- possibly related to them, and that built to his acceptance into the business. And about a year into his work here, a year and a half in the Minneapolis territory, Rock went to the Southern Rings, and he uh, hooked up with Gene Anderson and Lars Anderson, and they dubbed him Ole Anderson, Brother Ole. Uh, Okay? So Ole Ole was then gone. And um, at that time, about a short time later then, Lars Anderson came home. He wanted to come back to Minneapolis and work. And he came in as luscious Lars Anderson. And they told the story that he had changed. He was no longer wanted to be associated with uh, the Hainimi name. And But they never brought Gene Anderson back in. Gene never came back home. There was no rivalry or no rift or anything between Vern and Gene. It was simply that Gene found a home in the South and was making a lucrative living, and with the Anderson Brothers dynasty at work. So yeah. that's how that went. Wow. Wow, a lot of, lot of, lot of information there. To, but the, yeah, the AWA to me, you know, it's unfortunately, in my opinion, doesn't get the credit that it deserves. And I know the WWE put out a a DVD about, you know, 18 years ago on it and stuff. And, but, uh, you know, it's just that, that building blocks that, you know, Vern getting those and Wally, uh, getting all these superstars, uh, making them into superstars and, 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 you know, the grind of that. So I want to talk about that, George, too, the grind of the business back then, you know, you had to drive a lot of places, from one city to another, what, in your opinion, you know, if you had to drive from Minneapolis to, to, I don't know, let's just say Montreal or something, the grind of that, I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? You know, Brian, the thing that uh, back in the 60s, even into the 70s, um, air travel wasn't as easy access and as common as that is today if you're going to cover larger mm-hmm. territories. But you have to remember in the territory days, um, most of the territories outside, I mean, you use that, you know, remember we had 25, give or take, different territories around the United States in the 60s and 70s. And so if you went to work for a territory, you were going to do some travel, driving. And so here, here's Minneapolis, Minneapolis Wrestling. 
They ran both Minneapolis St. Paul, of course. They picked up Winnipeg later on. They had Omaha, Lincoln, any when I say Omaha, I'm talking Nebraska, a lot of the mm-hmm. cities, but Omaha was the hub. So Omaha, we had the Dakotas, we had Wisconsin, you know, meaning Milwaukee and Green Bay and other cities. We had Chicago, uh, other cities around there, Rockford, and we had Iowa with Des Moines and uh, uh, Davenport. You know, the circuit was big, and then Denver was added. And when you talk about the driving, Denver was one of the places which was they would fly from Minneapolis to Denver. But when they were going to go to Minneapolis to Omaha, they drove. When they went from Minneapolis to Iowa, whether it be Davenport or or uh, Des Moines, uh, Waterloo, they they worked in. Sometimes they worked alongside the the Kansas City territory, central states, with some of those cards, mm-hmm. and. The travel, yeah, you drive from here to Chicago, from Minneapolis. When I say here, it's Minneapolis. Um, the guys, I remember Nick Bachwinkle. I think he described it best when he said to me one time, he said, you know, and, and some people have heard me tell this, but this is a fun story, too. He said, you know, and, and this story came about one time when he was looking, he was in my wrestling room, and he was looking at programs. And he made the comment, he says, you know, we, I never saved any of this stuff. He said, I, wrestling was a job. I, I got up in the morning and I was going to go to work. Just like, you know, I got up and I went to work at the bank in my days of working. And so he says, we never saved any of this stuff. He said, we went from town to town and here was his, here was his analogy. We drive two or three, four, five, six hours. 300, 600 miles to get to a town. We'd wrestle. We hoped we got paid because you had shyster promoters. You know, the, the the house wasn't great or I can't, can't give you what I promised you. And, you know, the stories are all over. But he says, we hoped we got paid. Then we'd get done with our match. We'd go back to, we'd go to the store, grab some bread, bologna sandwiches and a case of beer and go back to the hotel. We'd get up the next morning, hop in the car, and we'd drive another five, 600 miles to the town the next night and do the same thing all over. He said, that's the way that the business was. And it was, and, and Nick himself, he told me, he says, it, that lifestyle wasn't very conducive to considering having a family mm-hmm. or being married. And you know, the irony of it is, is that I think we can, we can use our imaginations and realize that yeah, if you're away from your family four, five, six nights a week, sometimes you're gone for two weeks at a time where you're on the road. And and Nick told me, he says, you know, you, you'd get paid and you'd send money home to the wife for the family, but you're on the road because you got two, three more towns to get before you're ever going to come home. And it also led to marriages breaking up, obviously infidelity you know, the temptations of the road. Yeah. It's not that you condone it, but you have to understand that it it was out there. That you're you're away from home for two weeks, three weeks, a month. And uh you know, the wrestlers, yeah, they had girlfriends and it's just it was the nature of the beat it described. And the scheduling, you know, the wrestlers would get a booking sheet when they were in a territory. They might get their whole month's matches where they'd have it all listed as to where they were on a given night, whatever town it was, and who their opponent would be, or at least scheduled to be. Sometimes they didn't know. Sometimes that was arranged in a particular town, depending on the size of the town. You know, you'd have six or eight wrestlers that would come in, and they'd arrange the matches there. But usually they had to have their main events and things signed because that's what was drawing the fans in, you know, to see the crusher against Mad Dog Bashan or something. You had to have that. So, but they would get their booking sheets, and then it was up to them in those days. This was the other thing people didn't realize. They got paid, but out of their pay, they had to pay for their own gas money, their own travel, their own hotel or lodging, let's put it that way. They had to pay for their own food. So whatever they got paid, 
you know, they had to make sure that worked to get mm-hmm. them through, you know, just like anyone else. I mean, which logically we all do when we go to work. What your paycheck is, is you got to survive on that for until the next payday. So it, it was a, it was a very, very hard life. And what a lot of the wrestlers, you know, obviously we didn't have gas prices like we do today, but at the same token, we didn't have the incomes that we do today. So it was all mm-hmm. equal when you think about it. But the guys would, three, four of them would band together, get in a car. As Jimmy Brunzel said to me, or he says it in his book too, he says, we'd all hop into a big Oldsmobile 98 and we'd, you know, split the gas and head to town X for the next car, you know. But that's the way it was. It was yeah. a very rigorous, uh, a rigorous schedule. And yeah. at times it was lonely. Um, uh, Nick told me one time, Bachwinkle, he said, you know, when you're away from your family all that time, he says, the boys you're, you're traveling with and, and working with, um, you do get very close. You, you do form good uh, camaraderie between you, and, and you depend on that guy. And that guy might be your opponent in all these cities, you know, that yeah. you're going to. And, and, but you're good friends. And, and when they would go to an, a town, they would never drive together into the town because in those days, kayfabe, I mean, these guys, it was embedded in them. You do not break kayfabe. And when you did, you didn't work. I mean, they, it was real, folks. So if yeah. Nick and Vern hated each other, or let's use Nick and, or Vern and Don, Mad Don, if they hated each other, they can't come into town together in the same car, nor yeah. can they be out in the restaurant that night having a beer together, because then the reality is out. Yeah. And I remember one time I was – I had ridden with um, Marty O'Neill to a spot show down in uh, Redwood Falls, Minnesota. And that's a smaller town. They had a spot show. And the main event that night was Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon against the Redhead, Red Bastine and Billy Red Lions. Lions and Bastine, of course, the babies in this. Well, after their match, we're in a small town here, okay, southern Minnesota. And we went to the bunch of the wrestlers, and I was there with Marty because I rode down with him. We went to this little restaurant, bar, tavern type place. And uh, the good guys on the card were over here in the restaurant, and the bad guys were way over here on the other side. They weren't together. And if they happened to walk past one another, they they would either give them a dirty look or, or, you know, but there was no camaraderie between them. And yet, Mad Dog and Red Bastine, they were the yeah. best of buds. Wow. So it had to be tough on these guys because yeah. a lot of times they would park the car four, five, six, ten blocks away from the little arena or the gymnasium they were going to be at. And they wouldn't come into the arena together. They'd come in opposite doors. You know, the perception was always there were two locker rooms, one for the bad guys, one for the good guys. Yeah. In many cases, it was just one long dressing room that had two doors from each side. <laughs> but you don't see that from outside. Right. Yeah. And, but, yeah, it was a very different business. And yeah. you had to have that perception of reality. And then the yeah. other thing that Vern and most promoters always told their wrestlers was that if you get into a fight outside the ring or outside, yeah, outside the ring, you're at a bar, you're at a restaurant or whatever happens, if you get into a confrontation, you better win. <laughs> I mean, that, that's yeah. the bottom line. You get into a bar and, and some, you know, guy that's had too many barley pops gets in your face. You better make sure you take him out before he takes you out. Because yeah. if you don't, you're done. You're not wrestling yeah. here anymore. Because you had to be tough. <laughs> yeah. And so it was. It was a fun business. So I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind yeah. of the role. No, you, that's yeah. kind of the role. And and then no. the other thing I'll, I'll, I'll add at, before I let you take a breath here, or add something. Um, 
a lot of times the travel would be so hard on the guys, they might leave a territory because, the, you know, to go from one town to the next, it was a whole day's trip mm-hmm. and the whole recycle thing. So St. Yeah. Paul, Minneapolis, AWA, one of the reasons that any wrestler of any merit ever wanted to work here was that the travel schedule and the actual wrestling schedule was a lot less uh, tedious than a lot of other territories. In mm-hmm. the AWA, a wrestler could work maybe three, four nights a week. So you'd have, you know, you might not have three nights in a row off, but you'd work three or four nights. You'd have time to maybe be at home with your family. <laughs> and the thing too, when most of the wrestlers that came into Minneapolis to work for a, a period of time, generally they rented a house or an apartment or something in Minneapolis or a surrounding suburb and lived here while they were uh, in the territory. Uh, Dick Beyer, Dr. X here, uh, he lived in Bloomington uh, with his family when he was here, rented a, he was in an apartment um, and he lived here. So that's how it went. Um, And then when it was time to move on, they'd go to another territory. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard uh, that, Travel or the schedule is pretty a lot better than most territories, and the pay. Uh, Vern oh was God. very good at paying. Yeah, and you know th- that's something that we really need to to make a home run here. Vern Gagne, in the '60s, the '70s, and even the very early '80s, you would be hard pressed to find a wrestler that said Vern was not a good pay man. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always when Vern told you what you were going to make. And these guys knew what, generally what they were going to make in a territory. If it was lucrative for them to be here, they knew what their monthly or annual salary was going to be, you know, within a close proximi- uh, proximity of what it was. Um, but they will tell you that Vern was a good pay man. And there were a lot of other promoters that were given that credit. Guys like Don Owen in, in Portland and uh, Paul Bosch in, in Houston. Good pay guys. They kept their word. So, Vern, uh, the paydays were good. They wanted to be here for the paydays. They wanted to be here because of that uh, lesser schedule. And, again, I I refer back to Nick. Nick said that one of the things about working in Minneapolis was that he he actually only wrestled about six months out of the year. I mean, he wrestled year-round, but with the time off that he had. He says, "I, I worked about six months out of the year. And, you know, in the 70s, Nick was making $150,000, $200,000 a year. Now, again, that's good money today. I don't care what anybody mm-hmm. says. Yeah. It's still good money today, but it was great money. You know, it's probably like a million today, whatever the inflation crap comes yeah. in. But it was it was a great payday. And yeah. so Nick says that was the best part about working here because yeah. you could go home for, for stretches and – be with your family. Yeah. Wow. Well, George, I I've learned a lot today. I know people that are are listening or watching this have learned a lot today. So thank you again for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Uh, look forward to having you on again in the future. One more time, ladies and gentlemen, pro wrestling historian. Legend, good friend of mine, Mr. George Shire, sir. Thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I love doing your show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, if you're watching, thank you. If you're listening, thank you. And if you haven't yet, George has books that he's written, four of them, uh, three of them on the AWA, specifically AWA Record Book 1960s, AWA Record Book. 1970 to 74, part one, and AWA record book, 1975 to 79, part two. And Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, From Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. Get those books. They're great. I love them. Uh, And if you become the thousandth subscriber on this YouTube channel, you will get a signed copy 
of Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors, signed by my good friend here, George Shire. So subscribe, folks. It's easy. Just hit the subscribe button. It's all free. George? I'd like to, I'd like to make a quick plug, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, for those that are interested, if you live in the local St. Paul, Minneapolis area, May 2nd, Tuesday night, I am going to be doing a wrestling talk on the AWA at the Washington County Heritage Center in Stillwater, Minnesota. You can look it up on the Internet. It's on Greeley App. I'm going to be there at 7 o'clock in the evening. We talked for a couple hours, but um, I will have books there. And it's always fun when the folks come out and we get to chat a little bit. And I get some great stories from the fans, and I love talking yeah. old wrestling, as you know. So if you're there, come on out. Go see him, folks. Good out Thank there. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much, George. One more time, Mr. George Sire. Folks, if you haven't subscribed, please do so, and we will talk to you soon. Hey, this is Total Package, Lex Luger. You're listening to the VOC Nation. Don't miss out. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network. Check out In the Room every Tuesday night at 9. Listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star Stro Maestro, Cassie Fitz, Matt Grimm. And you and Ray are there too, right, Ray? We sure are, and we've got great guests like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Taku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off uh, buildings. And then uh, uh, I didn't get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into, like, snuff film territory there. In the room. 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Yo, this is Jerry Stiles of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs here. You get ready to get nasty. Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby. VOC Nation is one of the longest-running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer The Maestro, former Impact performer Wes Crisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor Brady Hick, and former Philadelphia radio personality Bruce Works. Archive-free content includes past interviews with huge names like Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Sting, Mick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at VOCNation. Phil After has been in the pro wrestling business for over 50 years. Hey, Tony here with uh, Arn Anderson. Arn, first of all, your height and weight. 6'1", 255. And now subscribers to VOC Nation Premium get exclusive access to Bill After's archived audio footage. And uh, where's your hometown? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, and uh, give us something about your back. First of all, your relationship to Ole Anderson. Ole is my Subscription to VOC Nation Premium starts at just $3 a month and includes commercial-free audio and video versions of our top podcasts. Okay, we're speaking here with uh, the manager of the World Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Tarzan Tyler and Luke Graham, and he's, uh, he's sort of glowing tonight about a new prospect we haven't heard of yet. And for just $9 a month, Aptor's archives are all yours. Uh, would you tell us who this new prospect well, is? Well, I'll tell you, Bill, I've searched the world, and I finally <laughs> found the true world champion. I finally found... What's your opinion of uh, Ivan Koloff winning the title from Bruno San Martino? Well, I think, uh, I don't know what to say, but I, well, I don't want to say one thing. Bruno was an early champion. Hear exclusive interviews with the greatest performers of all time. Here's Bill Actor, and once again, we're speaking here with Bruno San Martino. Bruno, first of all, how did you and Bruiser lose that title to the Valiants? Well, actually, it was a, a, a very unusual loss, if you want to call it a did loss. Did have anything to do? Well, yes, but the whole thing is this, if you rules, as I always understood and wanted to the title could only be lost by pin or, or submission, which is the same rules as uh, my title, the World War Wrestling Federation. That night, uh, it was... To sign up, it's very simple. Head to premium.vocnation.com 
or go to patreon.com slash vocnation. VOC Nation takes you behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro. Talking old school match of the week. Talking dream matches. Taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out. VOCNation.com. WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation Radio Network. This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation. 